If you are a person who's involved in uh, the medical community, you're a person who works particularly in emergency medicine, you might be familiar with uh, this particular image or this object. This is called a MET tag. And by the way, you don't wanna see one of these over your neck at any time, okay, if you're a patient, because what these are for is sort of mass casualty incidents where it allows medical professionals to very quickly identify not only who's injured, but also how serious are their injuries in order to know the priority of care that they should be given. So green is not very significant, yellow, you could wait, red's immediate, and black, you just met Jesus, right? So, uh, so those, those are kind of the tags in terms of a hierarchy of uh, thinking about patient care. And the reason that's important is because, you know, back in the Civil War, they didn't think about medicine in terms of triage. Instead, it was sort of on a, on a first-come, first-served basis, and as a result, didn't matter if you were gravely injured, if you were there first, you got treated first. And understanding how to take what you know and then also how to be able to triage it is really important when you're caring for people's bodies. But it's also true, this idea of triage, in other areas. You see, it's, it's not just important what you know, but it's also important to know how to get that in the right order of importance. Every parent has to do this. Like, you can't get on your kids for every single issue. You have to force rank them. Business leaders know this. You have to prioritize things based upon what's the best possible route to the best possible bottom line. Uh, teachers, you have to prioritize what you're gonna teach and what's important, what goes on the study guide, what's gonna be tested, even how much you can actually accomplish while on Zoom in a classroom. Law enforcement have to triage, deciding what should be investigated and what should be prosecuted. Marriage counselors have to decide which issues are we going to deal with first that will have the maximum effect of helping a husband and wife to be able to reconcile. So you need to know that triage decisions are a part of life at so many levels. And they're also part of what it means to be a Christian. You see, spiritual maturity, church, is not just what you know. Spiritual maturity is also knowing what's important. And that order, that triage decision is really, really essential to faithfully following Jesus in a complex world. Following Jesus faithfully means that we have to balance faith and works, and that requires a sanctified triage. In James, He's going to triage one particular issue. It's loving your neighbor. And essentially today in this text, I wanna help you understand the issue that's underneath the other issues that are in James, and it relates to the issue of love. Today I wanna to give you three reasons why true obedience prioritizes love. So when you think about what true obedience is, or if you're a Christian, what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus, if you're not yet a Christian, when you just think about like what should Christians be like, well, James tells us at the foundation of how they think about life, love, specifically love for neighbor, needs to be at the core. It, when you triage issues, love for neighbor needs to be there. So today we're gonna look at this from three angles. Love, first, is the essence of obedience. I'm gonna help you understand why love is 
so central to obedience. Secondly, I wanna help you understand that not loving people is really serious. And then third, I want you to know that love is a gospel implication issue. This isn't just something you might do, this is something you must do if you really know the gospel of Christ. So, number one, love is the essence of obedience. So you're in James chapter two, look at verse eight. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. So when James says at the end there of verse eight, doing well, he means this is the right way to live. In chapter one, it sounded a little different. If you look at verse 22 and 25, here's how James describes it there. But be doers of the word, this is James 1:22, and not hearers only deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, and at once forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So the entire book of James is about this central issue of what does true obedience look like? We see it there in chapter one, verse 22 to 25. We see it now here in chapter two and verse eight. And James is concerned about the connection between faith and obedience. So that the goal of what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus, the effect of having received the good news of Christ, that your sins have been forgiven, that Jesus has transformed you from the inside out, is that there's a direct connection between the gospel of grace and living by grace. There's a direct correlation between receiving the love of God through Christ and giving the love of God through Christ to others. So when James says you are doing well, church, this is more than just an affirmation. This is a statement of authenticity. This means you really understand what it means to be a follower of Christ. So if you look ahead of the verse, the earlier part, you'll see that he says, if you really fulfill the royal law. So royal law, think of this as the central law of the king. That's, that's why James uses this word royal. And if you were to look back to verse one of chapter two, you would see that he refers to Jesus as our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So there's a, there's a kingly rule dynamic that's in play with that title Lord. Now that word Lord doesn't land on us like it would have landed in the first century because that title referred to both spiritual and political dynamics. In the Roman Empire, Caesar was called Lord. In fact, the statement that was often made as a statement of, a, or a proof rather, of allegiance was Caesar is Lord. And that meant both politically prominent, you're following him, but it also meant that he was to be worshiped. So in the New Testament, when the disciples say, Jesus is Lord, they're making a risky statement. They're not only saying Caesar won't be worshiped like Jesus should be worshiped, but they're also saying, 
Rome may be powerful, but I belong to a different kingdom. My kingdom is headed by Christ. So we don't feel that when we hear the word Lord. Maybe another phrase, not in the same way, would be commander-in-chief. Now, we don't have commander-in-chief worship like they had Caesar worship in Rome, but there would be this idea, my commander-in-chief is Jesus. The one whose authority I respond to is him. So this royal law then represents the law of Jesus' realm. This is the defining ethic of what it means to live in the kingdom of Christ. The phrase, love your neighbor as yourself, that's the royal law. So if you summarize all of Jesus' kingdom, if you summarized the ethic of what should the kingdom of Christ look like, or if you summarized what should believers in Jesus, when they kind of boil down their allegiance and their obedience, what should be the defining ethic? When you triage their obedience, what should be the core of the core? What should be their motto? Their motto, says James, is you will love your neighbor as yourself. So kingdoms often have mottos connected to them. If you were to do a little search and looked at Roman arches, you'd see over the top of many arches four letters, S, P, Q, and R. And those were the Latin letters corresponding to the motto, the Senate and the Roman people. Or I'll give you a couple other examples. E pluribus unum. It's the motto of the United States, out of many, one. Or Semper Fi, it's the motto of the Marines, always faithful. Or my pleasure, (laughs) it's the motto of McDonald's. No, wait, Chick-fil-A, that's right. That's the kingdom of Chick-fil-A, exactly, right? So so kingdoms have a motto, The, the, the motto connects to what's the essence of what defines them. Church, the motto in Jesus' kingdom is we love our neighbors as ourselves. This this ethic was supposed to be what obedience looked like, such that love was not supposed to be one thing among many things. Love, rather, is the essence of everything. And what happened is that Jesus took this and he expanded it in Shocking ways. In John 13, he says that you will, people will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. In, in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter five, he commanded his followers to love their enemies. And then in the parable of the Good Samaritan, when he tells the story, he, he made a Jewish priest and a Jewish Levite the uncaring people in the parable, while he used a socially marginalized person, the Samaritan, who would have been unneighbored as the prime example of what it meant to be neighborly. (laughs) He used a non-neighbor to demonstrate what neighborly behavior looks like in order to get in the grill of religious people who were not being good neighbors. No wonder the parable really made them mad. Church, love, love, is the reason why, in James chapter two, partiality in all its forms, whether it's about money or class or social capital, whether it's about ethnicity 
whether it's about who you know or what you do for a living, ethnicity at all levels doesn't, or partiality rather, excuse me, in all its forms doesn't fit with the kingdom of Christ. Love for others, love for neighbor, is supposed to be the hallmark of the kingdom of Jesus. No wonder the Apostle Paul says this in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Look, each of you, not to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and can understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith so as to remove mountains but don't have love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have and if I deliver my body to be burned, you're a martyr, but you don't love, you gain nothing. So obedience in its essence is about love. So could I just ask you, where does love right now in your life fit in your understanding of obedience. Think, for instance, of the conversations you've had this last week. Think of the text messages that you've sent. Think of the emails that you've written. Think what you've said about others. Think how how you've interacted with people. Think of the things that grabbed your attention. Think of the things that made you mad, the things that angered you or troubled you. Think of the news feeds that you've read. How much of it was really related to loving your neighbor? How much of it was connected to being concerned about the interests of others? What James is doing here is elevating this idea of love of neighbor as the essence of obedience. And frankly, this is so important that when you understand it, you realize it's, it's, it's impossible unless Jesus intervenes. And you know why? Because we human beings are terribly self-centered, like so self-centered at our core. And the beautiful hope of the gospel is this, that Jesus so comes in and showers us with the grace and mercy of Christ. He loves us in a way that we could have never been loved and in a way that we don't deserve. And out of the overflow of this beautiful invasion of mercy, God's people then give mercy to others. So if you're listening to this message today and you're not yet a Christian, could I just invite you to put your trust and faith in Christ, not just because you're a sinner and in need of a savior, which is true, but the hope of the gospel is this, Jesus will change you so deeply, it will stun you and it will also stun the world. And let me caution you, if the change in you isn't stunning, then the question is, do you know the savior? James is putting together faith and works because he's worried that some people claim they have faith when they really don't. Because true obedience prioritizes love. Here's the second thing, and that is that not loving others is serious. Now, now we've covered the sin of partiality extensively in verses one through seven. This particular dynamic in verses nine through 11 is meant to elevate the seriousness of this issue so that we won't justify it in crazy ways that we tend to as human beings. The fact of the matter is, 
The world in which we live is filled with all kinds of forms of partiality. Just think of the ways that people leverage their influence, their position, their money, their wealth, their status to get what they want. It's, it's, it's like we're swimming in this water of perpetual partiality in the world in which we live. Think, think of the ways that people are marginalized based upon their wealth, their status, their ethnicity, or some other classification. The partiality is a part of the world in which we live at lots of levels. And the challenge is, is that it's easy to justify. The other thing, if we're honest, is partiality is hard to see in ourselves. The line is sometimes murky. And what's also crazy is how quickly our defenses go up. I mean, how many times have you heard, I'm not showing favoritism, or I'm not biased, I'm not prejudiced. And that may be true. I hope it is. But it's remarkable how quickly our guard goes up with this issue. And part of the reasons why, part of the reason why is because it's easy to hide it. It's easy to tolerate it. That's why in verse nine, he says, if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Why would he say that? He says that because there's people who think my partiality really isn't that sinful. James is like, no, when you do that, you violate the whole law. The other reason is he's writing to religious people, and if we're honest, it's far too easy for religious people to sometimes hide their partiality behind their religion. We can use religious activity in order to hide the reality of not loving our neighbors. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount elevates the heart condition when thinking about adultery and anger. Matthew 5, or 1 John 3, when John says, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. Why does he say that? Because it's so easy for us to make a little carve out for not loving our neighbors. Throughout the history of Israel, God's people did this in lots of ways. You need to read the prophets to see the way in which this issue is spoken into. Let me just give you two texts as illustrations. Isaiah 10, woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil, that they may make the fatherless their prey. What is Isaiah talking about? He's saying, look, just because it's right doesn't mean it's right. Just because it's legal doesn't mean it's appropriate. That's what he's saying. Or in Isaiah 58 and verse six, we, we take spiritual um, activities and we use them as a way to hide our lack of concern for others. The Israelites were saying, but God, I fast. I'm religious. Isaiah 58 says this, is this the fast that I have chosen? To loose the bonds of wickedness to undo the straps of the yoke. He's saying, this is the kind of fast that I want. Let the oppressed go free, break every yoke. It's not the fast to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. See, the fact of the matter is, is it's 
possible for us to find very convenient ways to cover our lack of love for our neighbors. So when you think of love, you need to think about it in, a, in this kind of category. The standard is not whether or not you've broken the law or not. The question in James is whether or not you've loved your neighbor. It's not just did you do something wrong. That would be wrong, but it goes to even a further step, more of an affirmative case, but have you loved your neighbor as yourself? And what James is saying here is to not love your neighbor is serious because true obedience prioritizes love. All right, third, it's serious. It's the essence of obedience. Third here, love is a gospel implication issue. James says in verse 10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Verse 11, he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So all of that relates to the serious nature of this issue. And then in verse 12 and 13, we come to the conclusion. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. So what's he doing here? James is connecting love for others to the very essence of the gospel. He says, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of what? Of liberty. What is the law of liberty? The law of liberty is the gospel. James, or Galatians 5, verse 2 says, for freedom Christ has set us free. That's the law. Or Romans 8, 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. Or Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. So the law of liberty is the gospel. It is this life-transforming grace of God that's applied to the hearts of people who would never love God if he had not loved them, people who would strut their way to a Christless eternity, fully convinced they were right in their own minds until Jesus comes in, invades their soul, helps them to see who they really are, how they violated the law of God, and then wipes their record clean because they put their trust in Jesus. And these people who have received this kind of mercy and this kind of love and this kind of kindness and this kind of generosity ought then to be the kind of people who extend that kind of generosity to others. If God is holy and I am not and Jesus saves, then church, Christ better be my life because he didn't just save me from hell, he saved me from me. He saved me from a self-centered pursuit of always only thinking about myself. And what James says is, you wanna know the banner over God's kingdom, over Jesus' realm? It's love your neighbor as yourself. And James would beg you, think how unusual and how powerful how countercultural this would be, because this is what the gospel does. It radically transforms people from the inside out so that they live in light of the gospel. They don't just live in light of the law, they live in light of grace. This is so important. John says this in 1 John, we love because he first loved us. 
If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has seen, has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must love his brother also. This is why verse 13 connects judgment and mercy. That's why he says mercy triumphs over judgment. It doesn't mean that judgment is unimportant. Believers are commanded to make judgments. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 13 tells the church clearly that. But here's the thing. When it comes to our relationships with one another in the world, we have to do some triage and we have to prioritize love. If you're right but not loving, you're wrong. If you're truthful, but not loving, you don't know the truth. If you're doctrinally correct, but you're not marked by love, you're embracing heresy. Do you see the point? Don't don't leave today or stop listening thinking that I'm saying the truth doesn't matter or doctrine doesn't matter, or being right, of course it matters. That's not the issue. The issue isn't whether those things matter. The issue is where does love fit into that particular issue? And what James is pleading with is religious people under the press of hardship and difficulty, he's pleading with them, the royal law, the thing that marks the kingdom, the thing that's supposed to characterize the church of Jesus Christ, the thing that is supposed to mark our lives at the end of the day is we love our neighbors as ourselves. There's lots of places that I could go to illustrate this for you. Amazing stories of the ways that people love their neighbors. Let me give you one that relates to ethnic partiality. In the 1960s, Governor George Wallace was the face of segregation and racism in America. In his campaign for governorship and eventually the presidency pounded on a lectern and said, segregation now. Segregation forever. In 1972, Wallace was running for president and there was an assassination attempt. He was shot and the bullet pierced his spine and he was paralyzed. Fast forward, 1979, George Wallace was wheeled into Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, just a few hundred yards away from the state capitol And in front of an entire congregation of black Christians, Wallace asked for their forgiveness. It was a stunning moment. He was wheeled out as the church exploded in amazing grace. And for the rest of his life on earth, he continually sought forgiveness from those that he had harmed. How did that happen? Well, his daughter Peggy told the story that in 1995, told the story in 1995 that while he was in the hospital after being shot, a black congresswoman named Shirley Chisholm, who was running against him, made the 
gutsy decision to go and visit him in the hospital. Her staff, who were managing her campaign, thought it was a terrible idea. It would likely cost her the nomination. People would not see it kindly. And she said, one act of kindness may make all the difference in the world. And she went. Peggy Wallace, reflecting on that moment, said that her father was stunned at Chisholm's kindness and her courage, that she was willing to face negative consequences because of visiting him, something he knew he would never do for anyone else. And it proved to be a transformative moment. I don't know all of the reasons why Shirley Chisholm was motivated to do that. I don't know about her faith commitment. I don't have any idea about that. I hope she's a follower of Jesus. I have no idea. But here's what I do know. I wish those were the church's stories. I wish, I wish, I wish, I wish that we had story after story after story after story of the crazy way in the midst of a society pregnant with partiality at every single level in so many issues. This isn't just about ethnicity, it's about partiality across the board that we had people who so loved Jesus and were so transformed by the power of his grace who knew the gospel so incredibly well and the love that had been lavished on them that the mantra over their life, the motto that they lived by in Christ's kingdom on earth was we're going to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And for James, true obedience prioritizes that kind of love because the gospel and this ethic of the kingdom aren't two different issues. They're actually linked. The love of neighbor happens because of the love of God, because of the grace of Christ. True obedience prioritizes love. Jesus, your grace is able to help us because we know that unless you move we will always only be concerned about ourselves. So help us right now. Help us to know the ways in which you're calling us to love our neighbors as ourselves, to be so overcome with the powerful grace of Christ that we extend that grace to others. Father, make us a people whose faith is matched by our works. So bless us, we pray, with that kind of obedience through Jesus. And we pray this in Christ's name, amen.